I feel like part of this challenge for me in particular as a sibling is not having a place to have a voice and to have support and talk about the impact and the trauma that it's had on me over all these years. He says, you have no idea how hard it is. And I said, it's very hard to be a sibling or to be a family member. If it was easy, there wouldn't be a support group to help us through this as much as you. And so we're in the same journey together. And I just want him to know that too. And I think that he's finally seeing that. It's not just him with the illness alone. It affects everybody, but we're going to be there with you. Being a caregiver to a person grappling with a serious mental illness like schizophrenia isn't easy. Schizophrenia is a complex and often misunderstood illness that affects those living with the illness as well as those that love and care for them. A caregiver's responsibility involves so much more than mere physical care. And caregiving can take on many forms. Some may be the primary person providing day-to-day care for their loved ones, ensuring them a good quality of life, while others provide connection, understanding, and emotional support. All are invaluable contributions to the person's well-being. And yes, it can be a constant balance between empathy and patience as the individual may experience hallucinations, delusions, as well as cognitive impairment. But balancing their own needs with the demands of caregiving is not easy. Caregivers are often navigating stigma and societal misconceptions, and all too often, the caregiver's important role and well-being are overlooked. In the realm of mental illness, stories are often silent battles. Today on Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, Phaedra and I will be speaking to Paula Bomer. Paula is an author from Brooklyn, New York, whose father had schizophrenia. It was a difficult journey for Paula due to her father's paranoia. She had to learn as a child that despite our efforts, caregivers can't cure mental illness. We're grateful that Paula has joined us today and is open to sharing her story about the complex realities some families face when a loved one has a serious mental illness. Paula, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So Paula, let's talk about your father's experiences with schizophrenia, and we would love to know how old you were when you first started to notice those changes and started to notice the differences between your father and your friend's parents. They're very early memories. So the vagueness is that I knew my father was different because people made fun of him. Mm. (laughs) And so I was quite young. Do you remember those comments that people would say about your father? Yes. I just remember one boy. So I grew up in a very small college town in the 70s in South Bend, Indiana. And there was a lot of beauty to the simplicity of that sort of childhood. Mm -hmm. But we were also left to run around. So there was my neighbor. I don't know what he called my father. He used some word that my father was clearly different in an insulting way. Mm -hmm. I must have been I think between 10, 11, somewhere around there, maybe 12. And I asked my mother why my father was different. One thing I did at that point start to realize, too, is that he didn't go to a job. He did have a job when I was smaller. At some point, he became a piano teacher, and he definitely was just around a lot. So how did you know your father was different, Paula? Well, so first, I didn't know, but until people made fun of him. Mm -hmm. And then my mother explained to me. So it was kind of more retroactive, my understanding, besides the fact that he was around a lot and that he was gentle. I know that sounds strange, but he was definitely not a macho kind of guy. But then she did explain to me 
that he was mentally ill. And I think she may have even used the word schizophrenia. I was very much the daddy's girl of three daughters. Mm. We all were, but I was super attached. And that's something I've written about. I don't know when she shared it with my sisters. It was a private conversation that in my mind, I can see the two of us. I think we're sitting in the basement before my dad and I turned it into a pool room where we would shoot pool. I think we were down there and she kind of explained to me because I asked, why is my father different? Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that you grew up in a small town in Indiana. So let's talk about stigma and what it was like growing up in a small city with a father who had a serious mental illness. What was that like for you, Paula, as well as for your two siblings and for your mother? Well, I can't really speak so much to my siblings, but I can speak to my mother. She was very strong. I have an early memory of a massive nervous breakdown and visiting him in a hospital. So I was like five or six. And so that also probably was in my mind. There was no talking about it. And unfortunately, even when he committed suicide in 2010, and none of us pushed for it, I definitely was against putting that he had written suicide. Like, I was ashamed. And I was 42, and I'd worked in the mental health thing. Also, there's stigma, and then there's the desire for privacy. So that's an interesting thing to think about. You talked about your father being in hospital. What did you see, Paula? Do you have any recollection around your father's behavior? There was a term in the 80s when I worked in mental health. I worked for a year in halfway houses for the mentally ill as they emptied out hospitals. They put them in these halfway houses and I was getting my bachelor's in psychology. I wanted to figure out my father and I wanted to help my father. I know that Mm -hmm. was a big thing. There's a diagnosis of schizophrenia because he had continual auditory hallucinations through his life, but he didn't behave strangely. And when I worked at the halfway houses, a lot of the people who were diagnosed schizophrenic talked to themselves because they were talking to the voices they heard. My father never did that. What he did, which is kind of funny now because I'm a writer, is he would write me letters. That started later. That started when I left for boarding school. At 14, he would send me occasionally letters, and then I knew he was doing badly. He only wrote Mm -hmm. letters about the voices when he was not doing well. He was open about the voices then with you? With me, yeah. What did he say in those letters to you, Paula? Well, one of them I published in an essay, and it would always be like, stop sending me messages, And then they'd be somewhat around my mother. But Mm -hmm. I remember being scared as a teenager when I got one. And I would tell my mother. That must have been so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's hard in your teens to be experiencing that. And I also felt like I was betraying him. But I also Mm -hmm. was scared. You did mention how close you and your father were. What role did you play in supporting his mental health? You said he would send you letters. Was there anything else that you took on as an emotional caregiver, maybe? I think, strangely, that the mentally ill, like other human beings, just want to be loved and cared for and believed. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the hardest thing for me was to not believe him and tell him these are not true these thoughts and you don't need to give money. It was a lots of about giving money to Notre Dame. He had worked there as he was a French scholar. In many ways, he did so well for a mentally ill. So he's a unique case. He managed to do a lot. And then he, he cut down his life and made it more simple. And then when things got bad, it would flare up. So mm-hmm. when he committed suicide, it was because my mother had gotten dementia and he just 
couldn't handle it. Those two things were very related. So when they moved from South Bend to Vienna too, he started contacting me a lot. I was in my early 20s. So I would actually talk to him. I would talk to my mother. She would sometimes understandably just be in denial and think he was being annoying. (laughs) That sounds ridiculous, but God bless her. She was just like, he's being really annoying. And I said, he needs to maybe have a medication change. So he's on a lot of Mm -hmm. medication. So you did mention your mother's diagnosis with dementia. When you would talk to people in your life about your father's diagnosis when you were younger and then also your mother's diagnosis, did you notice a significant difference in the stigma? Oh, absolutely. There's no stigma about dementia. Mm -hmm. We still blame people for being mentally ill. I did not blame my father and my mother didn't either. But other people also think it's catchy or something. And they know that dementia is not catchy. Also, she developed dementia when I was 40 and he killed himself Mm -hmm. when I was 42. So mental illness is to this day not treated like an illness. I mean, there's always improvement in that area. But to me, also very little, particularly addiction. But schizophrenia, the thing that bothers me the most about the portrayal of schizophrenics is that they're violently crazy. They're just upsetting. It's upsetting to be around someone who's on a lot of medication, who can't take care of themselves very well. So my father, because he was able to live within a family and still do certain things at various times, participate in the music world, Mm -hmm. teach piano. That was one of his great joys was music. Having worked in these different facilities when you were doing more with people with mental illness and then also seeing your father living at home, do you think that your family being able to kind of take on that caring role and have him live at home helped with his overall well-being? Do you think that played a role in managing his symptoms? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So the divorce rate, too, of people with mental health is very high. I totally think that because my mother stayed with him and actually loved him, I believe in love, Mm -hmm. that he did so well for how ill he was. Yeah. And when she would become annoyed and she would call me and then I would know, I was like, okay, mom, (laughs) you know, I think he needs help. And that upset her. I think that denial was important for her sometimes because it was hard Mm -hmm. when he would withdraw and he would secretly do things financially Mm -hmm. and that he had to give money away so that Jesus would love him. He grew up very religious. And I think that it just became part of the conversation. Basically, demons, you know, these are demons that are torturing him. These voices, they were not friendly, nice voices. (laughs) Now, Paula, you obviously played a very important role in being there for your father and for your mother. Have you always lived close to your parents? No. And that's so sweet of you to say that, but I don't really think that I did. I did not live near him. I went to boarding school. Nobody went to boarding school from South Bend, Indiana. He went to boarding school. So I wanted to go to the same boarding school as he did. And then he went to college in the Northeast. So I left Indiana and at 14, he drove me to boarding school and he also drove me to college in Boston. He was so proud of me And he was very happy that I was going to the boarding school that he Mm -hmm. went to, but I was far away. And I think that was hard on him. So every time there was a disruption, part of it was when I left. And then also when in college, they moved to Vienna. My mother got a job in Vienna and the voices got very bad then. And they were in touch with me a Mm -hmm. lot. I had jobs and Mm -hmm. then I had a family. And the family, I named my first son after him. 
And that brought him great joy. But as you can imagine, I had very little time with two small children. We say a lot that it takes a village to help out. And while you maybe weren't physically present, I think that you definitely were there for your father and he turned to you. I was totally there for him emotionally. Yeah. And now how did his illness affect you, Paula, in terms of your life and the decisions that you made? It's funny. That's why I studied (laughs) psychology. But I also wanted to be like my mother who studied psychology. So then I realized, like, I'm not going to actually working in the halfway houses. I don't have the patience to care. So we're talking about care and it does take a village and it takes all kinds of care. And care Mm -hmm. is just not thought of as something worthy to do. No, it definitely takes a specific kind of person to take on a full time caregiving role. And I have so much respect for people that can take on that capacity because I think we all have different skill sets. I became involved with BCSS because like I work as the communications and marketing manager. So my strengths maybe are kind of more behind the scenes. I like to advocate for people through, similar to you, Paula, through writing and the pieces we share. So I know I personally am not somebody who can take on that full-time caregiving role, but I think that you're doing your part in your own way. Well, so There was a really rough time when her dementia kicked in and his mental illness got worse. And my kids were eight, 10, thereabout. And I would fly from New York to Vienna. So I even almost took their passports and I was trying to get him declared incompetent, which is actually very difficult to be able to care for him because I was concerned he was going to take his own life, which he did. We really try and make the best of the situation and we're all definitely supportive of him. But I think it's definitely a unique dynamic being a sibling versus a parent. I think siblings are often left out or forgotten about when it comes to the care team and who's involved in the meetings and who knows what's going on. And I really have to rely on my parents to pass these messages along. It could be a more inclusive family situation, especially because oftentimes siblings do end up taking care of their siblings after their parents pass. There's been eight to 10 hospitalizations, all involuntary, and then the fallout after. So it's taken its toll. So I'm very aware this time that I am not as compassionate. I have a lot of resentment built up and I'm struggling with a lot of complex emotions like really resisting having to deal with any of it again because I've got my own challenges in my life. My mother's getting older. I've been the main one all these years, so it's impacted me the most for sure. And then also having this deep compassion for her and others. And then another part of me wanting nothing to do with her. So it's very complex. It's different from day to day. Welcome back to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast about mental illness brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and our BC partner organizations. I'm Phaedra Aldridge. And I'm Melissa McKenna. And today we're speaking with author Paula Bomer about her father's schizophrenia diagnosis and the impact that it had on her. So Paula, let's talk about your father's time in Vienna. How do you think that move impacted him? He did not want to move to Vienna. It was a beautiful handling of the midlife crisis, but it was a crisis. And my mother said, I am done here. I have a job in Vienna. I want to go back to my home country. And he at first became more ill. He became more paranoid and the voices got very bad. And I was concerned. And he said, I don't want to be so far away from my children. I was in New York. 
And then, ironically, the voices told him he could never come back and that he must leave. He knew he had to go, and so the voices changed. And then when he was in Vienna, he did very well once he settled. He would write me a lot, and he missed me a lot. I have so Mm -hmm. many letters and postcards, and he was a very warm person. My father was mostly kind. My dad was good. And then when my mom started to fade, that's when things fell apart. Paula, I can only imagine what it would have been like for you. You mentioned that your father died by suicide. You were far away from him. I can't imagine what you would have gone through Mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah, it was really bad. So I was the one on an airplane to go get him. Mm -hmm. And by Mm -hmm. the time I got there, he killed himself. So I got angry that it had happened. I did not blame my mother because she had dementia and I'd been trying to Mm -hmm. kidnap them. Also, my dad at one point was like, I could move to New York. I was like, yes, just move here so I can take care of mom Mm -hmm. and you. And he's like, I'd make friends. He's like, I'd join a church and make friends. It was community for him, though, if that was where he was going to find friends, that that was something that he found comfort in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But then that never happened. So he left my mom alone. And first he asked his pastor there. He called her and he said, I need help. She said, why don't you ask your wife? She told me this later in person. I had to leave the room because I was angry. (laughs) So he just went to a homeless shelter and that's where he killed himself. So what steps did you take after hearing the news about your father and the tragedy around that? What did you do to cope, Paula. I didn't do well. I just didn't. Yeah. I'm not proud of that. That's okay. It's a it, see. That's no how I feel. I appreciate yeah. you saying it's okay. Mm-hmm. It becomes a time. I think, like many times, of horrific grief and shock and yeah. violence. It was a violent death that you have to trim people out because people just don't get it. And you become hard to be around, so people will stop. Also, people, the catchiness of mental illness, like now they're like, oh, now we're going to catch your grief. So it was a terrible time. And you had young children. Yeah, the problem is I didn't tell my children that my father had committed suicide. I didn't put it in his thing. I just couldn't. Also, my kids were so little. I yeah. kind of felt mm-hmm. the need to protect them. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I did a year or so later that I remember The time was really blurry. I basically was drinking and smoking and just being, first I'd get through my day. And then by nighttime, that was like my time. And I would cry a lot, which is people don't Mm -hmm. like. People don't like it when you fall apart. For sure. Now, Paula, what do you think we can do? We talked about how difficult it was for you, which absolutely 100%. Your father had an illness. And that's one of the biggest reasons we're doing this podcast right now is to increase awareness. So how do you think we as a society can better support individuals living with a mental illness, as well as better support those that love and care for those people? So I see a great change right now and that mental illness is becoming something that young people are talking about. In an ideal world, we would think of care as everyone's responsibility. Mm -hmm. And we would also treat it like it was important as opposed to something that we kind of look away Mm -hmm. from. Well said. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's ever going to happen, honestly. Now, Paula, do you talk about your father's illness? Do you talk about it openly or is it something you tend to shy away from? 
So it took me three years to write about it. And that's quite telling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then also I tried to write, I've only written it in fiction once. And I am a fiction writer. I write very little nonfiction. And I turned to the essay and to nonfiction for me to try. And that worked. I've written about my father twice and both times was nonfiction. And I don't know what that means. I don't talk about it that often because people get upset. Mm -hmm. And also it upsets me, honestly. So that's why the privacy of writing is helpful to me. And then also close friends who know he died 13 years ago. So time Mm -hmm. kind of helps, but it can sneak up on you the grief. So basically, even if he hadn't killed himself, let's say, there's a lot of sadness and grief. Like, oh, my father is not a normal person. And that's sad. But I also think that all human life is very strange. But some people have it harder than others, for sure. It's incredibly difficult to have a loved one with an illness. But I think having a serious mental illness just adds that much more difficulty and complexity and knowing how to deal with it and talk about it and have the willingness and be able to talk about it. Mm. It's still very difficult for people to admit and to share. Absolutely. And that's problematic. I was so surprised to see some people recently just say my husband killed himself and right away, like and the funerals, you know, and I didn't do that. And I forgive myself for not doing that. Yeah. But I do think that it is good to talk about severe depression, severe mental illnesses more openly, because then we know that maybe it makes you feel less alone. Stigma to me means shame. And there's no shame. (laughs) I wish there were no shame, but there is shame because there's fear because it is a big deal. It does make your family different for sure. It is a big deal. And I feel like we so often hear those worst case scenario stories. So I really appreciate you sharing today how your father was sweet. You'd play pool together, all those different pieces of your relationship with him. I think it really gives a different perspective that we don't hear enough about people with schizophrenia. Oh, yes. He was a loving man. He wrote music. He was a great piano teacher. He was a great friend and he was an amazing husband and a good father. And he needed a lot of care, and it was hard to get it to him all the time, unfortunately. There's a lot of people that would be listening right now that are just beginning their journey with serious mental illness, whether it be them living with the illness or watching a loved one begin their journey living with a serious mental illness. So what advice or tips would you give a family member who is just starting their journey? So one thing that I was able to do was love him. He didn't irritate me. It worried me. And I feel fortunate that I was able to do that. What I wish I'd been able to do more was to be present. Wishing is a weird word that I try to stay away from because it means regret. Although as we get older, we look back and we do wish we had done things differently. That is also somewhat normal. I was so excited to have my own life as one should, but they need that Mm -hmm. love and comfort. And for a while, I wanted to have weekly conversations of like, how is your mental health doing? And he wasn't too open to talking about that. 
every situation is unique. Like I said, I think the personality matters. And so you're negotiating a personality with the mental Mm -hmm. illness. But to be in their life as much as possible and also to do other things, not just talk to them about their mental health. He loved to go out. He loved to go to concerts. He liked to walk just to be there for it because the worst case scenario really is the abandonment if you give up on them. Definitely. Because if you love anybody, you don't give up on them, even if they're a little different. (laughs) Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Mm -hmm. Or a lot different. Or a lot different. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) I like what you said about connecting in ways that aren't solely about the state of their mental health or their mental illness. For example, me and my sibling, we will play games over our phones together And that's just one way we can connect when he's in hospital. He'll have his phone and we can play virtual games that aren't related. And it's just something that he knows I'm thinking of him and vice versa. That is so beautiful. And that's exactly, I feel like we don't have the answer. But the reason why you do that with your sibling is Mm -hmm. because it's a comfort to you as someone who cares and loves your sibling. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely a comfort to him or her. Yeah, it's that balance of... Again, what you're capable of. I know, you, like you said, looking back, you wish you could have done something different, but you did the best. Like we are all doing the best that we can. So, I mean, and sometimes it doesn't look very good, honestly. You know, that's the wish. But I did for sure. We all do our best. I'll like to add the caveat, even if it doesn't look like it at the time, we were doing our best. Mm-hmm. And he was doing his best. Definitely. If you could go back in time, Paula, and do something different, what would you do? I would have asked somebody to take care of my kids and spent way more time in Vienna because a year before he killed himself, he had threatened to kill himself. And that last year, first I was like, we need to talk every day. And then it went to once a week and he was always fine. But I also flew to Vienna And then he came to New York and I talked to my sister about stealing the passports and I just didn't have it in me because he would have been so angry. And here's another thing that I wish. I wish I hadn't worried about making him angry. And I wished I had stolen their passports and made them stay. You've obviously been through many challenges in your life and a mother with Mm -hmm. dementia and a father with schizophrenia and a father that died by suicide. So how do you cope today and what is next for you? So now that my children are older, We talk very openly, and I do talk to them once a week. For a long time, I always thought I was going to go crazy. And so I developed a severe anxiety disorder that I was going to go crazy like my father. So I'm 55. I'm not going to develop auditory hallucinations, but I do have my own issues, which is anxiety. And I had substance abuse problems. But my children and I, we talk about these things. We stay close. And then, I mean, writing. Writing has always been my way of dealing with a lot of things. Yeah. I am lucky to have many close friends who also have siblings or parents with mental illness. And so I definitely feel I have a good community and that that is what we need in life is a good community. So always. important. Yeah. So you mentioned you were really concerned and afraid that you yourself would develop schizophrenia or another serious mental illness. Is it also something that weighed into your decision to have kids? Honestly, I kind of think I went in and out of denial. Um, At that point, Mm -hmm. 
when I decided to have children, I was feeling pretty good about life. But the minute I got pregnant, I did worry. Mm -hmm. So basically for nine months, mostly I was worried. But then when he was born, I felt fine. I just was worried because of my anxiety disorder, which I think is related to having a paranoid schizophrenic father. And that's where mental illness is obviously very biological, but there are cultural mm -hmm. and family issues that have to do with just being around someone who's paranoid. And then I had another baby and I think the same thing happened. I guess what I wanted to say that sounds maybe corny and I'm not very corny in general is that you can learn from caring mm -hmm. is that it can make you a nicer person. It can make you in that way a better person to deeply love somebody who's so troubled. I just always cared about him mm. and that he was a real person. Mm -hmm. He wasn't just his illness. Yeah. They are not their illness. Definitely. No. And thank you for sharing your story with us today. It was an absolute pleasure hearing your journey, and we really appreciate your openness. Thank you so much for having me. And a huge thanks to you, our audience, for joining us for this episode. Together, we can better understand and change the narrative around mental illnesses like schizophrenia. To get our latest podcast episode, be sure to hit follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll be back with more thought-provoking discussions in our next episode. Talk to you soon. This podcast is brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and the BC Partners for Mental Health and Substance Use Information. We're a group of nonprofit agencies providing good quality information to help individuals and families maintain or improve their mental well-being. The BC Partners members are Anxiety Canada, BC Schizophrenia Society, Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, Canadian Mental Health Association's BC Division, Family Smart, Jesse's Legacy, the North Shore Family Services Program, and Mood Disorders Association of BC, a branch of Lookout Housing and Health Society. The BC Partners are funded and stewarded by BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, an agency of the Provincial Health Services Authority. For more information, visit heretohelp.bc.ca.